I'm going to read the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize that the spirit, you, how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming in even now, is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives. Father in heaven, we ask that we would be able to understand what you teach. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. We thank you that it is announced directly and clearly to us in your word. But Lord, as we seek to apply it to our lives, we ask for the power of your spirit to change our hearts, to weaken our motivations which lead us away from you, to strengthen our desires to love and follow you. Lord, make us a church, make us Christians who would love one another, who would be bold in telling others about Jesus. For those who don't yet know Jesus, Father, I pray that they would understand the gospel Hearing it announced today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guy Goma waited in the reception area for a job interview. It was at the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. He's then ushered out of reception and onto the set of a television program. Now, he thinks this is strange as they're putting the makeup on him because he's not here for an on-air job, but he figures this is just one of those one of those interviews where they're going to put you in a stressful situation. Well, the television producer who had brought him in had actually walked into the reception area looking for Guy Cuny. And Guy Goma, in his nervousness, just thought his last name had been mispronounced. So he's going along with it. The producer thinks, though, he has an expert on this legal case. They're about to put him on the air live to answer questions from the host. Now, when the cameras start rolling, Guy realizes something is wrong. You can see him breathing heavily, the, the nervous sweat forming on his brow. And when the cameras go live, you see the moment that he realizes, I'm not in the right place. This is not the job interview. I am the wrong guy up here. His mouth drops open as he figures out what's happening, but... He's on live TV. The host, she's asking him questions about a legal case he knows nothing about, about its global implications, but he decides to just roll with it. He just answers her questions. Now, he gets through. He does a sufficiently good job that she just keeps going, agrees with him, and moves on. And it actually took them 20 minutes after the broadcast to figure out that they had interviewed the wrong guy. When they finally did so, they 
took Guy Goma to his actual interview, he said, which lasted only a few minutes. And sadly, they didn't give him the job. Today, the BBC rolls out the video clip just to show the humor of putting the wrong guy. They call it the wrong guy interview. Now, we're quick to trust an expert's opinion. That's why the BBC puts the expert on. But at times, the person giving us an expert opinion doesn't know any more than we do. It's just as lost and clueless, but we're quick to trust expert opinions, and we need to do so, right? Like, when I take my car to the mechanic, and he tells me what's wrong with it, I mean, despite the fact that I could, no, I couldn't. I was going to say I could probably identify some of the parts in there. I, my dad trained me for years. I might be able now to tell you the difference between pliers and a ratchet, but I'd still be guessing. All right, so I have to trust the mechanic and his expertise, or when I go to the, the doctor, I have to trust her opinion about, about the tests that have been run, what tests need to be run, because I didn't go to medical school, although I sometimes walk in with the arrogance as if I had, that I know what's really wrong with me. I need to trust the experts when I go into a meeting at my children's school that they understand the, the educational plan for my child, because I don't know everything. And yeah, I can, I can check online, I can read the reviews to determine if this person is reliable or not, although usually online reviews are rather cruel and depressing. Or maybe I can ask a friend, well, who would you recommend? Who should I go to? Where should I turn for this? Or I could ask another expert, somebody I believe to have expertise in a related field, to give me a, their opinion and their recommendation. See, we're all forced to trust other people. But how do we know who we can trust spiritually? How do we know that what we've heard, whether it was from our parents or from a pastor, whether it was in the church or outside of the church, how do we know that what we've heard spiritually is true? Do you see, and what some of us do in the fact that we, we begin to wrestle with these questions is we just say, I, I don't know. I don't know what I should do. And so, so culturally, it's become acceptable for us to essentially kind of elevate agnosticism, to just say, I, I don't know. And to say, I don't know, is fine. Spiritually, we think it's okay. But, but what about when I took my car to the mechanic? If I'm having trouble with the brakes, what if I say, you know what? I don't really, you know, I don't trust your assessment. I mean, maybe I could take it to a second mechanic if I think it, it's, it's really a big job and I want, a, I want a, a second estimate. But what if I just say, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just becoming dangerous now on the road. My car will eventually stop when it hits someone or something else. See, and spiritually, we're doing the same thing when we just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. Eventually, we're going to get ourselves into a spiritual mess because there is a truth that's announced to us. See, John is telling his church members, whom he calls dear children. He loves them. He's saying, there is a truth. You can know it. You can have assurance that it's true. He's asking them to hold firmly to the gospel that's been announced. But, but how do we know who we can trust? How do we know that the person sitting in front of us is who we really think he is? All right, because notice the problem with me here in, in chapter 4 of 1 John. John says in verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, he's using language that was used in the New Testament. Actually, all throughout the Bible about false prophets, those who announce something that's false. It's a warning that the church should have expected because 
Jesus himself told us as a church that there would be those who would come speaking falsehood. Jesus uses poetic language. In one of the places he talks about it, it's in Matthew chapter 7. That's the, the, the third chapter of the great Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of Jesus. And he, he offers this warning. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And that's a horrible image. But it's an image that any child who's flipped through a storybook understands. When Little Red Riding Hood gets to Grandma's house, it's really a wolf dressed in Grandma's clothing. And Jesus is warning us that there will be some, even from within the church, who will speak falsehood. Because that's actually the dilemma he's facing here. The reason that he writes this letter is because the, the Christians in the church are saying, how do we know who to listen to? John, after you left, the message that you announced, there are some saying that it, that it wasn't right. There are some denying facts about what you, you told us. How do we know who we can trust? And remember, this is in the ancient context in which people would turn. It was culturally acceptable to turn to a prophet for answers. One Roman general, he kept a, prophet on, a prophetess on his paid staff. So anytime he was making a plan about where he should go to war, where he should go into battle, she would have an opinion. Other times, even in, the, even in the Roman Senate, it was considered appropriate to go down to the temple and to ask a priest, a soothsayer, for an opinion on what, how should I vote here. Now, you and I, we wouldn't be that foolish. We're smarter than ancient people, right? We wouldn't trust unwise statements, guesses, prognostications about our future. And yet we're tempted to do so all the time. Tempted when we ask someone for advice, we realize, well, I wasn't really asking for advice. I wanted you to agree with my opinion. Because I'm really looking for the easiest path to get through this problem. And you're saying, I have to fix the problem. Let me see if somebody else can give me better advice. And we just keep asking until we get what we want. We only trust the news that already matches up with what we already believe. See, we live in the same kind of place where we need to test the spirits. And so John shows them the problem, but then he gives them a test. He gives them a doctrinal test, a test, match this truth to what you are hearing. If it doesn't match, then the person is a false prophet. And look, what is, what is the test? Look at verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. All right, now, in, in my translation, that spirit is with a capital S. Yours might have it a lowercase s, but, but either way, what it's telling us is whoever speaks, speaks in a spirit that either comes from God, spirit with capital S, God, the eternal Holy Spirit, or it comes to us from the world. So what's the test? This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God, verse 2. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Oh, got it. That seems pretty easy. Like, that's, that's, thanks. I mean, I should be able to just, you know, kind of run everything through this little grid, and it'll be fine. But see, the, the problem is, if, if, we, if we merely only stop to just, like, think about it, just cognitively accept this, then we're only getting part way. If we merely use this as a test to, to measure whether I should keep flipping the channels, or is this person on TV a charlatan or not, then we haven't really grasped the depth of what John is challenging us to do. 
Because notice what he is saying. That we have to recognize who Jesus is, why he came, what he has done, and where he came from. There's a lot packed into that statement that every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We have to acknowledge that Jesus is the one born of the Virgin Mary, named by his parents Jesus because his name means God saves. So God will save his people through Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised king from heaven. The Messiah who will reign over his people with all authority. He has come in the flesh. He is God himself here. He has come from God. And just just think of what John has already told us in this letter about who Jesus is, why he came. Let's let's just kind of run quickly through a, a couple of places. So turn back to the very first verses of this letter. 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. In verse 2, we, we, we read that the life, that Jesus himself, who is the life, appeared. He has shown up. And John tells us he appeared in the flesh. Look at what John says in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You see what John is saying? Jesus appeared in the flesh. John is saying, I was there with him. I could touch him. We sat and ate meals together in the flesh, the true Son of God here in the flesh. Now, now jump with me to verse 7 of chapter 1. Why did Jesus came? Look at the end of verse 7. Because he came to purify us from our sin. How does he do it? By his blood. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. You see what John is saying? Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for us. And then what is Jesus doing now? Jump to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We jump to chapter 2. What is Jesus doing? He's the one who now speaks to the Father in our defense. Verse 1 says of chapter 2, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John is saying, Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus shed his blood for us as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus now in heaven intercedes for us, pleads for us. That's who Jesus is. Chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that he is the one who is coming again. He will be made known. We will see him as he is. 1 John 3.16 echoes the good news of John 3.16 from the gospel of John. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, what John is saying, anyone who cannot announce to you the gospel, who will not say all that that entails, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and that person is not from God. See, John doesn't want us to be hesitant about accepting this message. Jesus came. He died for us. He is the king who reigns in heaven. And, and you and I need the whole story. We need all of that. If Jesus isn't here in the flesh, then he can't die in my place. And so then I will be left to face Jesus as judge in my own strength, bearing my own sin. I need Jesus to take my sin. How do I receive this gift? By trusting 
in him, believing in him. That's what chapter 3, verse 23 says, to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to put my trust in him. Jesus came in the flesh, died in my place, and now offers forgiveness as the king in heaven. That's the message you and I need to believe. And John isn't hesitant to lay out these claims. He's saying, if this isn't what you're hearing, then what you're hearing is not the gospel. Anything else, anything else is false teaching. Now, you and I, we, we live with this assumption culturally that ah, that just seems, seems really narrow to say that you have to believe this or it's false. Because we live, and maybe this is the way you're, you've come in thinking today. I mean, don't all religions basically sort of teach the same thing, right? I mean, there's commands about caring for others, serving others. There's some religious observance and obedience, some things that you should do, but they're, they're basically all the same right? See, the problem is, though, religions make contradictory claims, so they can't all be true. Now, you might say, well, I'm, I'm smart enough to figure out, but they can all be wrong, right? I mean, they can't all be true, but they could all be false, except what John is telling us is this is the one that's true, because just think of how they make contradictory claims about who Jesus is. See, there's some religious systems, maybe even, maybe even it's not religious, it's just a philosophical system that says, hey, Jesus is kind of a cool guy. Like, I'd hang out with Jesus. He's got nice things to say, like turn the other cheek, forgive, forgive and forgive and forgive, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I like Jesus. He's a, he's a nice guy. There are even some religions, even that might use the word Christian, although what John would say is this is a false message, that say, well, you know, Jesus is an inspiration for us. He can, if you, if you orient your life according to his principles, you can, you can change your life. But that's contradictory to what, what the Bible is teaching us, that Jesus is God's son. No, but there might be other religions that would say, there would there, be religions that agree with that, that Jesus is a nice guy. We put him in the pantheon of, of gods, maybe even, to, to worship. You might even accept him as, as some sort of divine figure, but didn't really come in the flesh. See, religions offer contradictory claims just about who Jesus is. And John is saying any other message is false. Because you can't be a nice guy and say, I am the judge of all the earth. I am God in the flesh. Anyone who does not believe in me deserves to be condemned. You can't be left in the category of just a nice guy. Yes, you can be a loving and good God who brings about justice and mercy, but you're not just a nice guy. Nice guys focus on the, the warm and fuzzy feelings, not the judgment Nice guys wouldn't lie to you and say, I am God in the flesh. That person you would call crazy or a liar. But John is saying, here is the truth. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It entails all of the truth that the blood of Jesus was shed for us, that he speaks in our defense, that he laid down his life for us. This is the gospel message. And so that's the test that we can use to determine whether or not what we hear is really true. It's a test you should be using when you hear preachers step into this pulpit. But if we just stop there, a test that we would use to determine what other people believe, then we would miss much of what John is teaching. Because he's telling the church that every spirit that acknowledges this is from God. 
He's told them through this, through the letter, you are from God. Which means, as God's children, you must acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh. See, if we only apply it to what other people say, then we miss the, the, the bold claim, the bold command that John is giving to us, that we must acknowledge this truth. Because verse, verse 3 warns us that every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And so I think, and, and John's primary, primary application here is to those who have left the church, this church here in Asia Minor, have left the church and are purposefully teaching against the gospel, to willfully denying the truth about Jesus. But I think he would also apply it to those of us that, that maybe haven't willfully denied Christ, but we would be counted among those who are unwilling to acknowledge Jesus. Those unwilling to make a bold, public declaration about who Jesus is. We're hesitant to openly acknowledge Jesus because people, they'll think we're crazy. God came in the flesh, died in my place, physically rose from the dead, and now reigns in heaven. You want me to believe that? But, but John is not surprised that people are hesitant to believe this because he says in verse 5, they are from the world. They speak from the viewpoint of the world. The world listens to them. Of course people haven't figured this out on, your, on their own. You didn't figure this out on your own. You didn't get to God because you discovered this truth. You got to God because God came to you, died in your place, and now reigns as the king, and someone else announced that good news to you. Now, as we receive new members today, we got to see that often that happens with those that are closest to you a parent to a child, a sibling. It happens as we announce the gospel to people around us, but we're hesitant to do so. We fear their rejection. We fear that those coming from the viewpoint of the world, with their philosophical assumptions, they, they won't listen to us. They'll think we're foolish. And so we hesitate to share the gospel. Earlier this week when I drove the church van up to pick our missions team up at the airport, I was, because we don't drive the van often, I had to do something that I don't normally do in my own car. I had to stop at a toll booth and hand money to a person. And so here I am in the big red church van, and, he's, and, and I said, well, how's it going? Because he's, he's got to make change for me, make, give me a receipt. And he said, it's awful. People out here are awful. I've been doing this job for 30 years, and I think every year people get worse. They get meaner, they get more terrible. You know, I'm sitting in the church van. I'm the pastor going to pick up a missions team. And so with the window rolled down, I pointed to the church name and logo right there on the side. And I said, I'm up here to pick up our team that, that's traveling back because they were, went to announce good news. And, I, and tragically, I agree with you. We're all terrible. Not just the people who have had bad days, not just the people who are short with you. Now, he didn't get the full 30-minute sermon because there was a line of people behind me. But he got the condensed version. But you know what? It's pretty easy. I mean, I'm a pastor in a church van with a, with a cross on the, on the top of the steeple right next to me. It's pretty easy, actually, to share the gospel in those situations. 
because I am unlikely to run into him in a social setting where he will say something which will put me to public shame. He lives up near Newark, New Jersey, after all. See, it's harder. We fear the rejection. We're unwilling to acknowledge Christ, often when it's people closest to us. And yet think of those who risked, risked rejection for your sake so that you would hear this good news. And John doesn't leave us just in our own strength. Look at, look at what he does. He turns us back to Christ to give us strength. Look at verse 4. You, dear children, you are from God. That means you have to be those who publicly, openly, willfully, joyfully acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus is here. He is from God. But, but look at what he says. Verse 4. You, dear children, you are from God. And you have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You fear the rejection of what the world will say? Jesus has overcome. Jesus has already gained the victory. You already know the outcome. You already know on the day of judgment who will be put to shame trusting in himself. If you trust in yourself, you will bear the full weight of your sins and the rejection, the punishment of your sins in hell. If you acknowledge who God is, then you receive forgiveness. You know the outcome. You know the victory. And, and that word there, overcome, it's a word that means victory. Jesus has gained the victory. Now, in this tense, in this perfect tense, the have overcome, it's only used in John's letters in the New Testament. And, and what John does is, is I think all he's doing is reminding us of a time he heard Jesus use this exact phrase. I've said, I've said this repeatedly through the series. John is just plagiarizing Jesus again and again. He just says, oh, remember when Jesus said that? Oh, let me take that to the church, to my dear children. Let me remind them of, of who Jesus is, what he said to us. And so Jesus, John is telling us that the one who Jesus has overcome, the one who is in us, is greater than the one who is in the world. He's just repeating what Jesus said. Back in his gospel, John chapter 16, the very last verse of that chapter. And remember, for, for, for context, in the gospel of John, John chapter 16 comes on Thursday night, the night of Jesus' betrayal. The next day, Good Friday, Jesus will die. And the very last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples before his great prayer of chapter 17 is a word of encouragement in the midst of the darkness. Jesus says to his disciples in John 16, I have told you these things. I've told you that I am going to die. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. In the darkness of Thursday night leading to the death of Christ, Jesus says, I have overcome. In the darkness of your current fears, Jesus says, I have overcome. In the darkness of your pain, your rejection, Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome. Jesus has gained the victory. Jesus died in our place. Your sins are forgiven, and so put your trust in him. Be willing to publicly acknowledge him. The victory is ours, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
So you and I need this truth, not merely to determine what other people believe, but determine, do I really believe? Am I willing to publicly acknowledge Jesus as my Savior? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus has appeared. He has come in the flesh. Jesus died in our place. He is the Savior who rescues us. You and I need this hope. It's the hope announced to us at Christmas. It's the hope announced to us on Good Friday, the hope announced to us on Easter Sunday. You and I need the good news of God incarnate in the flesh to die in our place. Flight attendant Pierce Vaughn visited with her parents a few days early last December. Before Christmas, they had to celebrate early because as a new employee of the airline, she was scheduled to fly on Christmas Day. Well, her father decided, that just doesn't seem right. She's going to be stuck with a layover, not at home, but in Hartford, Connecticut, sitting alone in a hotel room. And so her dad decides he's going to fly every one of her flights over Christmas so that he can just be with her. Now, it actually was, was a bigger deal because he, earlier that summer, last summer, he fell from a ladder and broke his back. And so he had gone through rehab. He had moved from a chair to a walker, from a walker to a cane. He had to go to his doctor and to his therapist and get clearance to be allowed to fly to make sure that, that the medication that he'd been on, it would be safe. And we actually thought it would just kind of be like ho-hum. Like, which, what 25-year-old woman wants her daddy flying with her? And yet it was a joy to her to have her father right there with her at Christmas. But think of the meaning of Christmas. The, the reason that this story catches on at Christmas time, the reason it got repeated on the national news is because it makes Christmas feel special. But think of the real meaning of Christmas. God didn't just hop on a flight. God himself came in the flesh. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus offers us eternal life. He shed his blood. He is our atoning sacrifice. Believe this truth. Acknowledge publicly and boldly the good news of this gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, your word offers a challenge to us, and yet such great comfort. For those who feel overwhelmed by their sin, let them find in Christ a victory a victory which belongs to Christ and through faith is given to us. For those that feel weakened by the, the struggles and trials of life, Lord, let us see in your great work, in your love, your power, the power of Jesus Christ who promises to overcome. Jesus who in the darkness with his disciples announced that he gains victory. For those that don't have faith in Jesus, give them faith now to see your love and mercy extended to us, your great faithfulness. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.